so we're one person on this planet there's over five billion human beings and think of how many animals there are and tiny insects and fish and other living beings in the ocean incredible number of sentient beings just on this planet and our planet is just one dot in this particular universe Think of how many different life forms there could be throughout the universe. How many different types of sentient beings there are. Celestial beings, demigods, hell beings, hungry ghosts, animals. So many different realms of being many sentient beings and our universe is actually just a tiny dot in the whole expanse of infinite space with so many other universes with so many other sentient beings living in them. Countless universes and even more countless sentient beings living in them. Each of those sentient beings wants to be happy and not suffer, just like us. Each of them has been our mother many, many, many times in previous lives and cared for us with all that tenderness and patience that mothers care for their kids. And so we want to give something back to them we can see that they're lost in their confusion holding impermanent things to be permanent holding things that are suffering in nature to be happiness holding things that lack a self to have a self 
the best benefit all these kind mother sentient beings. We have to realize the Dharma in our own mind stream, gain the capabilities of an enlightened one, to expand our ability to benefit. And so we generate the Bodhicitta is aspiring for full enlightenment for the benefit of each and every kind mother sentient being. sentient beings as evanescent or momentarily disintegrating like ripples in the water and how the ripples are just changing all the time going, going, going so similarly our sentient beings and on that basis generating compassion verse 9 goes a step further and it sees uh, it is the compassion observing the unapprehendable. In other words, not apprehending sentient beings is truly existent. So, verse 9 reads, I praise compassion that focuses on the objectless, that sees all beings, however they appear, to be empty of inherent existence, like the reflection of the moon in water. So that's our author here in 108 Verses on Compassion, and he's referring to that same um, verse in Chandrakirti's text that I read before that that covers uh, both the second and third compassion. So Chandrakirti says, homage to that compassion for migrators seen as evanescent and empty of inherent existence, like a moon in thin water. So those three lines in Chandakirti cover both verses 8 and 9 in our text. Okay? Let's go back to verse 9. Okay, so when it says the compassion that focuses on the objectless, objectless means that um, that compassion focuses on sentient beings who are qualified as being without inherent existence or free of uh, true existence. So objectless here, the same as unapprehendable, it means uh, without an inherently existent object. Okay. So uh, that's how that compassion is apprehending sentient beings. So in doing this, um, it really sees so clearly how sentient beings' suffering is totally unnecessary. Okay? Because all, all of our suffering originates from this ignorance, the self-grasping ignorance that grasps the true existence. From this total misapprehension 
of reality, then we generate uh, confusion, as well as uh, attachment, as well as animosity. From there we act, we create all this karma. The karma keeps us twirling, cycling in the cyclic existence again and again and again. And it all just came from our mind. That's all. There's no uh, external being who is creating our situation. There's no external being keeping us locked in a cycle of misery. There's no external being rewarding and punishing us. But this whole situation we're in comes about completely due to our ignorance. So when we see other sentient beings like that, we see how totally unnecessary their suffering is. Because ignorance is a wrong consciousness. Ignorance is not in tune with reality. So all this suffering comes about unnecessarily. I mean, if ignorance were in tune with reality, if it perceived things as they indeed existed, then, you know, there's nothing you could do to stop it. Okay? But this whole thing comes from a misconception. So it's, it's not necessary, you know, all this suffering that sentient beings are going through. And so when we see this, our heart really goes out to them. And that's what this compassion is all about. Okay, it's the compassion seeing sentient beings as, you know, as without inherent existence, yet because they grasp onto inherent existence, which doesn't exist at all and never has and never will, therefore, they create so much suffering for themselves. Okay, so we're really getting to the root of the problem here when we generate this kind of compassion. So how do, uh, oh, okay, before I get on to that. Um, so that compassion sees sentient beings as holding on to something that doesn't exist and thereby causing their own suffering. Also, when we see sentient beings as qualified by um, non-inherent existence, we are, we are changing our way of apprehending them. Because when we apprehend sentient beings as truly existent because we're ignorant, that's when our way of helping them gets really skewed. Okay? Because we solidify them. There's these inherently existent sentient beings. So then, therefore, there's some that bring the inherently existent happiness, so I'm attached to them. And others that interfere with my inherently existent happiness and bring me truly existent suffering, so I can't stand them and want to beat up on them. And then there's a bunch of them who don't influence me anyway, so eh, who cares about them? Okay. So, you know, we have a lot of obscuration to having... Uh, impartial compassion because we grasp an inherent existence. When we cease the grasping of inherent existence, you know, then all these judgments uh, about sentient beings stops. Okay? And we stop this discrimination of some near and some far because we realize that there's no inherently existent sentient being there to start with. So how can we make some near and some far? Okay? Because we begin to see 
Okay, in our, put it this way, in our ordinary view, we look at somebody and, okay, there's my friend Henrietta, you know, the most dear, precious one I've ever met. Yeah, so Henrietta's suffering is almost as painful as my own because I love her so much. Okay, so, you know, Aunt might... Aunt Ethel, or you know, Uncle Uncle Milton, or you know, whoever it is, you know, you you, their suffering is so painful because you're seeing them as just who this person is that they are in this life at this very moment. You're not even seeing them as a baby or an old person. Okay, you're just seeing them how they appear to you right now, this inherently existent person. Okay, and so then, of course, we get attached to them, and then when they don't do what we want, we get really mad at them, and then all of our compassion is out the window, and, you know, because they harmed us and hurt our feelings and betrayed our trust, and boy, we wish them to suffer. Okay, so we get so mixed up, and it becomes so hard to have compassion, because we're grasping at sentient beings as inherently existent. When we see that there's no inherently existent sentient being there, then we see a certain kind of equality. You know, there's just bodies and there's just minds. Okay? There's just mind streams. Yeah, all these mind streams have the Buddha potential. They're all empty of inherent existence. They all have the seeds of the Buddha's qualities in them. They're all equal in that respect because there's no inherently existent person there who's running the show or who's different from anybody else. Okay? And so there's just a mind stream. There's just a body, a merely labeled body. You know, a body that disintegrates. That body is not that person. So whoever we think this person is right now that is the basis of our attachment they're not going to be like that in 50 years or 100 years. Their bodies are going to be totally different. Even if they're still as a human being, their body's totally different. Their life is totally different. They may be born in a different realm. Who are they going to be then? Certainly not the person we know now. Okay? I mean, we've all had contact with each other in previous lives. When we meet each other this lifetime, do we meet and say, oh, hi, yeah, I remember you 14 million eons ago. We were in, you know, Uttara Kanita, and we were, you know, hanging out to get together. No, we don't recognize each other, you know? So, you know, everything's changed except this continuity keeps going on, one moment of consciousness to the other. But when we solidify it as an inherently existent sentient being, then we have so many emotional reactions. Okay? When we see the emptiness, uh, you know, our, it really helps our compassion be more equanimous towards everybody. And with impartial compassion, then of course we're so much more effective at being a benefit to them, aren't we? We're not judging them and categorizing them and all this whole thing. Okay? So this kind of, of compassion is, is much, much deeper than the, the preceding two kinds of compassion. Now, when, there's, uh, when we talk about uh, these last two compassions, I think I may have mentioned before, um, 
all three compassions, the object is sentient being, sentient beings. The aspect in which we're seeing the, the sentient beings, the aspect in which we're relating to them, is wanting to be, them to be free of suffering. But the mode of observing them is different. So in the second compassion, we're observing them as impermanent or as merely designated on the basis of their aggregates. In the third compassion, we're observing them as not inherently existent. But that compassion that itself doesn't perceive non-inherent existence. Okay? We meditated on emptiness before, but by the force of the energy of that previous meditation, now when we're focusing on sentient beings and generating compassion, we can see those sentient beings as qualified by lacking as you know a solid self but we're not actually perceiving emptiness directly at that time okay so we're apprehending sentient beings as qualified by um, by emptiness okay so that compassion sees all beings however they appear okay to be empty of inherent existence so However they appear, they're not an inherently existent friend, inherently existent enemy, truly existent stranger. They're not a truly existent God, celestial being. They're not a truly existent hell being. They're not a truly existent human being. Okay, none of those things. So however they appear, they're empty of inherently being that. They're just that conventionally for the time being. Okay, so they are empty of inherent existence, like the reflection of the moon in water. Now, when we say that sentient beings are empty, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. It means they're empty of inherent existence. Okay, so don't confuse existence and inherent existence, because they aren't the same. Okay. Sentient beings exist, but they are not inherently existent. Okay? Because inherent existence is solid existence, independent existence. It would mean that they existed without depending on causes and conditions, without depending on parts, without depending on a mind that conceives and labels them. Okay, they would be there of their own nature and therefore permanent and unable to change. But they aren't like that. Okay, so they exist, but they don't inherently exist. Because when we search for an inherently existent sentient being, we can't find one. They're not their body, they're not their mind, they're not something separate from their body and mind. In the same way, when we apply this to ourselves, we're not our body, we're not our mind, and we're not something separate from our body and mind. Okay? There's something there, but you can't find it when you try and look for it with analysis. It is only existing on the level of appearance. But when you search for it, it's gone. Okay? So, since it beings appear like the reflection of a moon in water. 
we used to be able to walk up to the pond further up Akron Road, you know, and there was a little pond there, and I used to look in, uh, in, uh, at full moon nights at the moon reflected in the water there, and it looks like a moon. Okay, is there a moon in the water? No, there's no moon in the water. It's empty of moon. There's totally no moon. Okay. Does the moon appear? Yeah. Does the reflection of the moon exist? The reflection exists, doesn't it? Does the moon exist? No. Okay. So, it, there's something there that exists in a different way than it appears. It appears to be a real moon, but it's not. Okay, there's only the reflection of the moon, the appearance of a moon in the water. So in the same way, okay, we see sentient beings as inherently existent, but they don't exist that way. Okay, they exist as empty. They exist only nominally as being merely imputed. So they don't exist as they appear. The the example of the moon reflected in water is just an example here, okay? Because it it gives us the idea of a worldly illusion. But there's no moon there, so there's no inherently existent sentient being there either. But there's an appearance of a sentient being. And even the arhats, who are out of cyclic existence, even all the Aryas who, have, who directly realize emptiness, when they're not in meditative equipoise, in emptiness, when they're just walking around during the day, they have the appearance of true existence. All of the Aryas except the Arya Buddha has the appearance of true existence. Why? Because the cognitive obscurations haven't yet been eliminated from their mind. So if somebody is in meditation on emptiness with direct perception, there's no appearance of true existence at all. But in any other mental state, there is some kind of appearance of true existence. That's a false appearance. It's totally false. That's why we say conventional phenomena are falsities. Because the way they appear to exist is not how they exist at all. But they still exist. They exist nominally. Just because there's a concept and a term for them. That's all. But they function. Even though they only exist nominally, they still function. So I really like the example of the TV. Yeah. Okay. Um, because if if you didn't know that it, you know what a TV was, you know, let's say you had never encountered a TV before, and you walk in a room, you might think that there's people inside that little box on the table. Yeah. Now we laugh and ho 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 ho. All people think there's people in the box on the table. But look at how emotional we get, we get 
when we look at the, that box on the table. There's no real people in that box. But boy, they can make us mad. <laughs> or boy, they can make lust arise. Can't they? I mean, we have so many reactions to these appearances of people in, the, in this box on the table. But there's no people there. There's an appearance. But still, because there's an appearance, the appearance functions. It causes things to happen. We can watch His Holiness on the TV and feel happy and generate a virtuous mind. We can watch... I was going to say Rush Limbaugh, but is he on TV? He's on the radio. I've never heard him. Who's on TV? Uh, Bill O'Reilly okay whoever he is my mother sent me name Bill O'Reilly you can watch him and get angry (laughs) well I don't know who he is I'll stick with George W (laughs) Uh, you know but you can look and get angry but there's no person in there okay our mind is grasping at a person that doesn't exist inside that box. There's the appearance, but there's no real person. So similarly, in all of our things during the day, there's appearances of real inherently existent people and things. And we even think that we ourselves are inherently existent. That's why we love ourselves so much. There's a big eye in there that occupies the entire universe. (laughs) It is the entire universe. But because we grasp at this inherent existence, you know, then so many problems arise. When we can see this and have compassion for ourselves and compassion for others, then that compassion becomes very, very profound because we're really seeing the situation we're in and we can also really see our potential because part of our Buddha nature is our emptiness of inherent existence so when we have some inkling that we're inherently existent not, whoops, when we're not inherently existent what did I say before? When I talked about our Buddha potential, what did I say? We're not in here. He says, okay, good. <laughs> okay, so when we realize we're not in here, it leaves us it. You know, then we see, wow, it's possible to really cut out all this craziness in my mind. You know, in our minds, because it's all based on this grasping. Okay, so then we have real confidence. Okay. That's where real confidence comes from, is understanding that we're empty of inherent existence. You know, confident because we're good looking, or because we're knowledgeable, or because we have a high status, or because we're rich, or because people like us, or any of the things we usually try and get confidence about. Those kind of confidences, they're a recipe for low self-esteem. Because none of them last, do they? Not one of them last. 
they all go out of existence. So all of our self-confidence is based on these transient things yeah, that we're not. Then we're, we're headed for crashing. Yeah, unless we can release them before. But if, we're, if we've understood that there's no inherently existent person, then we see you know, that it's possible to become a Buddha because we can understand emptiness, eliminate the ignorance, cut the root of samsara. And so then, you know, we have so much confidence because we see our own potential and we have so much hope and joy in our lives. And then when we look out at other sentient beings and see that they're not inherently existent either, then we can have a much more optimistic um, attitude towards them as well. Because they're not inherently evil, they're not inherently stupid, there's no such thing as an inherently existent jerk. Okay? So all these things that we think, you know, sentient beings are stuck in, they too are empty of inherent existence. And so they have the Buddha nature, the Buddha potential. They too can become enlightened. All the causes of their suffering can be eliminated. So that gives us such a positive view of other beings. Because it takes away all this judgment. We have such a positive view of them. You know, here's the sentient being with so much potential. They can do so much good in the world. They can, they can become a fully enlightened being. Yeah. So we, see, we have hope and optimism regarding them. And we have compassion because we see how they're stuck. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but all these things kind of come together. And, you know, I mean, think about how the Buddhas must look at us. I find this a very helpful meditation, you know. You know, as much as you know about the qualities of the Buddha, think about how the Buddha looks at you. Here I am, stuck in my stuff, and my story, and this is me, and this is my problems, and here's all these ungrateful sentient beings who don't appreciate me. And here's all this horrible stuff that's happened in my life. And here's all these good things I want to do, but I'm frustrated at everything I do to try and accomplish all these good things I want to do. And it's just so nerve-wracking and so, you know, because I have so much compassion and I want to benefit the world. And I'm even sitting there like that. You know, now how's a Buddha going to look at us? Can you, um, do we have any inkling of how much compassion Buddhists have? You know, of how much incredible the compassion they have. Because they look and they, they see how we're just totally creating our own dramas and misery. They see so much potential. They see more potential in us than we see in ourselves. Because we're so stuck in our self-image, we can't see our potential. They see much more potential. They're trying to point our, out our potential to us. And we fight them and we say, no, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I mean, all you need to do is try following your spiritual master's instructions and you see how your mind gets stuck in its own image. Because our teachers 
see our potential and try and get us to do things to actualize that potential and we sit there and kick and scream and say no I'm a baby don't ask me to do that because I can't you know don't we that's too hard I can't do it you know and here they are they see our Buddha nature they see so much potential they're trying to get us to do something you know and we fight them and they don't give up can you imagine that they don't give up I mean we try and help somebody after they they push us away a while we go don't do it your way I don't care go to hell it doesn't matter to me how do we say that don't we yeah okay but look how the Buddhists hang in there with us it's tremendous isn't it you know that they don't just wash their hands and, and give up why don't they give up because they have this kind of compassion that sees our potential they see our Buddha nature yeah so they have much more compassion for us than we have for ourselves they see our good qualities much more than we can see them they see our potential that we're blind to and they don't give up on us truly amazing truly amazing so you know that is because of this compassion compassion that sees sentient beings as like a reflection of the moon and water Questions? When one of us starts practicing, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are so happy. Yeah. I mean, today, some of you are going to say refuge and precepts and Bodhisattva. They will be dancing in the pure land. I mean, not literally. (laughs) They will be so happy. Yeah. Because they're saying, I've been working for infinite eons to get this person to keep good ethical conduct and now finally they're doing it can you imagine how happy they are and then especially you know people who generate bodhicitta take the bodhisattva that you know that's where the expression children of the buddha come from you enter into the buddha's family when you take the bodhisattva that well actually when you become a bodhisattva when you actually enter you know but the, but the Buddhas are finally they're so happy it's like wow you know the, they're thinking the bodhicitta is so important to me here's somebody who finally gets it and they want to do they want to do it too yeah so they're really happy what a question yeah in I'm a little confused because in the Bodhisattva vows, one of the vows is to not keep company with people who um, have this kind of complicated negative energy that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And yet, it seems to me this idea of not giving up 
at all sentient beings. There seems to be some kind of contradiction. Okay. Actually, that, that's um, more part of the refuge. Oh, okay. Yeah, of uh, not making best friends out of people okay. who have wrong views and, right. and so on, people who are unruly. And the reason for that is that we are not yet really strong in our practice. Okay? And when, when we're not strong, when we're around people who do other things, we're just naturally influenced by their behavior. We want to do what everybody else is doing. Okay? And, of course, when we're strong and we're clear, then we can mix with whoever and make whoever a good friend. Okay? Because we, when we're strong and clear, we don't need their friendship. The friendship is for their benefit. But when we're not very strong and clear, then, you know, if we get attached to somebody who has really bad ethical values, that person's going to influence us. So we don't hate those people. We don't block them out of the field of our compassion. We definitely should have compassion for them. Okay? But we just don't make them our best friends who we hang out with and who we tell all of our deepest things to and whose advice we listen to. Okay? So that's the thing. We don't reject them. We just don't make them our dear friends. Okay?